0: So by way of review, a little bit of review, going back to what we talked about the last two weeks, what is the difference between the universal church and the local church? Okay, don't overthink it. Don't feel like you have to give a Ph.D. level response. What's the difference between universal church and local church? Okay, so you've got the, the people that God has redeemed through the gospel all around the world universal church, okay, and also the saints who are in heaven. And then you have churches, local churches, and you have situations like this where we can see each other and we live geographically close to one another, and we covenant with one another to serve God together. Okay, that's the difference between the universal church and the local church. What are some of the characteristics of the local church? If you look at pages 49 and 50, you'll have lots of answers. What are some of the characteristics? Good. Yes. Yes. This is where you go to be fed, right? That's our goal as those who uh, teach here, is we want to feed God's people the Word of God. And you see at the very bottom of page 50, if you have page 50 with you, one of those marks is also self-governance. Self-governance, that a local body governs itself. And that's what we're going to get into today, is how that's possible and what that should look like. Here's a question for you, and more of a morality-type question. Is it okay to be a member of the universal church without being a member of the local church? Why not? Why can't you just say, well, I'm a Christian, I just, I don't do church. Why can't you say that? Okay, God made us for fellowship. He saved us for fellowship. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, there you go. How are you going to practice all those one another passages, right? Love one another, serve one another. How are you going to do that if it's just you? You can't one another by yourself. Yes, yeah. God gives you gifts for the purpose of serving in the church. What are you going to do with those gifts? You're going to be the uh, guy who buries his talent and does nothing with it. That's not good. A uh, funny way of thinking of this, this is a Babylon Bee headline, Man refuses to join local gym, claims he's just part of the universal gym. <laughs> no. So, there you go. Yeah. <clears throat> so, next time someone pulls the whole, I'm a Christian, I just don't do church thing, you can use your knowledge of theology to be funny. And they'll look at you like, what? And then you can explain it, okay? All right. Well, as we think about uh, church government and what that should look like, um, let's just start really broad and see if you've got any preconceived notions. What should church government look like? How should authority be structured in the local church? You guys got any ideas? Got any thoughts? Exactly like the way ours looks, right? What was that, Mike? Okay. How many elders? Okay. So, Mike has just confessed to a plurality of elders model for the local church, and that's what we do practice here, and that's what we believe is most biblical, and we'll get into that more next week. But as you have that kind of thinking in your mind of what should church government look like, especially if you come from an LDS background, it's going to be really important for you to think through this at a higher level at first before we get into the Bible, And so here's a quote before we get into some different models. Here's a quote from John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew. By God's design, churches depend on faithful leadership in order to be strong, healthy, productive, and fruitful. Okay? That's bottom line. Now, I'm getting ready to show you a few models. I'm going to show you five, five different models of the ways that churches can structure their government i don't have that on your sheet you look on page 51 there i don't have space for that so you can use the backside if you want to replicate this or you can just look and observe okay um whatever is best for you but first here's the anglican model the anglican model of church leadership and we've looked at this before we've talked about this before rather pretty briefly when we were discussing how Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church and we all have to answer to to God and each church, their under-shepherds have to answer to Jesus. Well, theirs is a bit different in that, um, you know, they would, of course, put God at the top, but after God is the King of England, which just feels so strange to us as Americans, doesn't it? (laughs) It's like, uh, didn't we, like, fight a war over that? Uh, How could anyone in America be Anglican? Well, there are some Anglicans in America, and the Anglican Church is structured with the King of England on top. And then you have what are called archbishops, and they would say, like, the first among equals of archbishops is the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is kind of interesting. He basically functions as the Archbishop of Archbishops. And from there, you have archbishops who oversee multiple bishops, and those bishops oversee multiple congregations. Okay, so. At this level you've got 1 to 1. You have one rector over one congregation usually. Sometimes there's a rector that'll be over multiple, but you have a rector per congregation. This is the individual local church level. But then they have like a district manager type role, okay, if we want to use business language. Where a bishop oversees multiple churches. And then you have archbishops overseeing multiple bishops. Okay? That's how their authority structure is laid out with the Anglican Church, and it all goes up to the King of England or the Queen of England. Kind of interesting. This is not the model that we follow, okay? And presumably, you're not seeking, desiring this kind of model because we're not ever going to look like that. Now, the next model I want to show you is the Presbyterian Church model, and this gets us a little bit closer to what we're like. And so if we start down here at this level... You have a plurality of elders per congregation. Each congregation has multiple elders. That's what we have, too. And there's a two-way relationship here that did not exist in the Anglican model. In the Anglican model, you don't really have, though they, they have this to some degree, you don't really have the same idea of the congregation holding each rector responsible or accountable. Whereas in a more Presbyterian model, the congregation is very much involved. The congregation is probably involved to some degree, in the selection of elders, though not the same as it would be here. The congregation is expected to keep a watch on the elders and hold them accountable. It's more of a two-way street, okay? Now, what you have, though, is multiple congregations with a plurality of elders in each one making up a presbytery. That's where they get the word Presbyterian. You may have wondered where that word comes from, and it's originally in the Greek, and we'll look at it next week. But they're called Presbyterian because they have what are called Presbyteries. And those Presbyteries are made up of multiple congregations. Multiple Presbyteries make up a synod, and all the synods come together once a year at the General Assembly, and they get together and they can vote on different things that they want to articulate as a, as a denomination. All right, so that's the Presbyterian model of Church government. Questions on Anglican or Presbyterian so far? Because these are those two are kind of unique as we launch into the next three. They're going to be different. Yes, Evelyn. It's, I think, definitely more of a title these days. I said I think definitely. Uh, that shows you how confident I am in the uh, answer. But But it seems to me, especially when you consider the age of queen and king here in recent years, um yeah, you just kind of wonder mm-hmm, how much he could really be involved. Other thoughts or questions on these two models? All right. Well, we're not Presbyterian either. So we are what is called a congregational church. We come from the history of congregational churches. Now, just that title alone should indicate to you that we do things more on a local level. This idea of having people outside our congregation who are over us is not something we do. Our leadership comes strictly from within the congregation, and the congregation is more involved in governing the church. So as we get into congregationalism, there are three different models of that, and they're simpler than this. They won't take as long for you to write down. Okay? So the first is a single elder model, the single elder model for a congregational church. Where you have a pastor who would be the one elder in the church, and the church will most often have deacons, and the deacons uh, are and the pastor are chosen out of the congregation uh, most often, and there's this two-way relationship between pastor, deacons, and the congregation, where the pastor has, uh, of course, the <laughs> you could say most authority in the congregation. But the the deacons are there to hold him specifically accountable and to help him with his duties. And the congregation also is there to hold him accountable. Um, And the congregation holds the deacons accountable as well. So the congregation is very much more involved in the selection of deacons and the selection of the pastor. There's probably going to be a lot of voting in a church like this uh, on a lot of issues. But that's the single elder model. And that is most common in Baptist churches, you're going to be, uh, see that most often in independent, fundamental Baptist churches. Um, they're almost always going to be this model. You'll rarely see a plurality of elders in that type of church. But a lot of Southern Baptist churches will be structured this way, too, where you just have one elder in the church, and they'll often call him the pastor. Okay. The next subset of congregationalism is the plural elder model. How simple is this? You have... A plurality of elders, as Mike said earlier, at least two, so there's a plurality, who oversee the congregation, and there may or may not be deacons. Uh, it's interesting, as uh, churches are planted, when a church gets planted, it's, it's very, very rare that they start off with the government that they want, because a church will sometimes be planted by one family. One family is just trying to start a church in a community. Well, what kind of church government do they have? Well, it's kind of just random. Sometimes a church will start with a group of 15 to 20 people, and that's great. Well, will they have a plurality of elders from day one? Often not. Okay? It's very rare that that happens. So a lot of times what will happen is a church plant could start with a model like this or work their way toward a model like this and then move to a model like this, where out of the deacons or even aside from the deacons completely, they end up with a plurality of elders. There are some church plants that actually establish elders, a plurality of elders, before they establish any deacons. I know of several churches like that. But it, that's just as they're getting started. But the idea here of what we're talking about is, what is the goal? What is the goal? Okay, Not what works for the time being, but what is the biblical goal? Okay, And then you have another congregational model. And this, I think, is really popular mostly in bigger churches, Where you have a board. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about the board of the church. I've got to talk to the board. And the board basically oversees the pastor, and the board is overseen by the congregation. The pastor is also overseen by the congregation. The pastor doesn't really hold the board accountable. It's the board who is holding him accountable. And it's more of a a business model than it is uh, something that's right from the pages of Scripture. And here you have uh, the pastor essentially functioning as a CEO or something like that in the church, and the board being the board of directors who oversees him. That's how that often works, okay? Um, Again, I think you'll see this mostly in uh, bigger churches, and again, there may or may not be deacons. So um, I would also say, too, many times the pastor does not come from within the congregation, um, but he's... Just someone who comes in from the outside and may only be there a couple of years and then move on to the next situation that's a lot like this. It's very businessy. It's a lot like business, okay? So thoughts or questions on congregationalism and the different models that exist there? Yes, ma'am? Yeah. Well, that's what is happening in the Bible, right? So you read through the book of Acts, and they never had a building. They always just had house to house. And yet we'll find they also had a plurality of elders. And so their fellowship would get together in those times, it was day by day is the phrase that we see often, with a particular emphasis on the first day of the week, Sunday. But they would get together very often, and when they would get together, they would have leadership, they would have elders, and they would have deacons. But uh, you didn't have anybody who was vocational in ministry like I am today. You wouldn't have anybody in the Bible being full time in ministry, though you have indications that they were financially supported. You see that in a couple different places in the Bible. And so, yeah. They're going to be closest to uh, this. Okay. That's LDS structure is going to be closest to this, where you've got your uh, bishop over each ward, okay. Then you have your uh, stake presidents that make up multiple wards make up a stake then you have your quorum of the 70 that oversees stake presidents and then that gets you up into the apostles and with, within the apostles you have their president and his uh, first and second counselor who are over the apostles so it actually kind of goes higher than that the tv's not big enough to do that model so uh, it has multiple levels and and that's how they're structured yep yep you bet any other Thoughts or questions here? Things. Okay, well, let's get into the Bible. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 together. With all that in view, these high-level authority structure views here, let's get into what Scripture has to say and see what our goal should be. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. Would someone please read for us Ephesians 4, 11, and 12? Stan, thank you. All right. So, really hone in on 11. Last week we looked at verse 12 that the goal of the church is to equip believers to serve. That's our church's motto, even, Orchard Hills Bible Church's vision statement or mission statement that we exist to equip God's people to serve. But look at verse 11. Name the offices in the local church that are found in verse 11. There are four. What are they? Apostles, prophets, evangelists. Yeah, and, and at the end, you've got some as pastors and teachers. And I think uh, the right way to think through that is that pastor-teacher goes together. Okay, Pastor-teachers. And that's what we'll get into next week. But apostles, prophets, evangelists, how often do we think of evangelists as an office in the church like pastor? Not very often, right? But this is the way the Bible presents that. There are certain people who have been particularly gifted as evangelists who exist by God's grace to help equip the body for the work of service. And again, we talked through that last week. Most scholars understand pastor-teacher to be the same office. However, there are obviously teachers in the church who aren't pastors. And again, we'll get more into that next week, as you see on the bottom of 51. When we talk about elders and deacons, we'll get into that. But uh, yeah, it seems like Paul had in view here pastors-teachers to be the same individuals. The New Testament uses the word apostle in two different ways. So now let's get into looking at these one by one. Two different ways. You have a blank on this. One way is that an apostle is an office of authority based on a calling by God. And the second way is as a missionary or a sent one. Those are two senses in which the word apostle is used in the Bible. And when we write about this in English... One way to think about it is there's a capital A Apostle and a lowercase a Apostle. A capital A Apostle is someone like Paul, who was specifically called by God to have authority in the church, to write scripture, to plant churches, to have a a very particular role in God's program, like Peter and John and James and the Twelve. Okay, So that's one sense where there's an Apostle. But there's also this idea of a lowercase a Apostle, someone who is sent out of a church as a missionary to go somewhere. And so, uh, say, one of these days, Shane and Connie pack their bags because they are apostles to India. And we send them out, and they are our apostles to India, lowercase a. Okay? And that's something we almost always have to say, like, lowercase a apostle. Because if someone thinks that we are establishing capital A apostles in our church, well, that's a problem. Okay? We don't want to give that impression. But those are the two senses in which Scripture speaks of apostles. In this passage here in Ephesians 4... Speaks of the former, the capital A apostle. So the disciples, plus Matthias and Paul, that we read about in the book of Acts, and that's where we need to go next is the book of Acts. So let's go to Acts chapter one and see these capital A apostles in action and how they were installed in those positions of leadership. So let's go to Acts chapter one together and look at verses twenty-one and twenty-two. And while you guys are turning there, if anybody's got a question or a thought to share, feel free. Yes, Brandon. Yes. Yes. Right. So for the sake of just giving context, of course, the LDS church does that. Um, but it's, it's not unique to them. There are lots of uh, movements that have sought to do that. And those are called restoration movements because they're trying to restore, so they say, the original design of God of having these capital A apostles. Their, their assumption is, we never should have lost capital A apostles. So they want to restore their churches back to this. Well, the problem with that is God's not giving his church these things anymore, these people anymore. So when you drive through, for instance, when we lived in Kansas City, you drive around, you see a billboard for uh, a church, and it'll be called something crazy like uh, World Dance Church or something goofy, and it'll have a picture of man and woman, apostles, Bob and Katrina. And you just think, what on earth is that, right? Uh, And you don't even want to visit. That's because they are thinking this kind of thing, where they have this ultimate authority over the church. Um, It's just not good, not healthy. Well, since John died, if he was the last one to die, yeah, right. So since the, the end of the first century. And it would be pretty easy to, um, you know, establish that someone is an apostle because what did God give those apostles to establish their authority in that early church? What could they do? Signs and wonders, healings. Yeah, they could do all these things. And why did God give those gifts? As signs to point to their authority. That's why they were given. And so today there's speculation of, well, okay, are there apostles or are there not? Well, God's not giving the signs. He's not giving the apostles. What you have are a bunch of people who are basically, um, what's it called when you dress up and you play with the foam swords? LARPing? Is that the word? Yeah. Or cosplay? Yeah. You have a bunch of cosplay or LARPing apostles today is what you have. It's, it's Halloween with the, uh, with the churches with apostles. That's what that is, okay? And here's another reason why we can look at uh, Scripture and say, you know, those capital A apostles, those were only for a certain time. And let's look at Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. After the death of Judas, let's take a look at how they replaced him. Who would read 21 and 22 from Acts 1? Mike? Thank you. All right, so the end of verse 22, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. It's the apostles talking about we need to go back to 12 apostles. We need to replace Judas. What are the qualifications that they put on this potential replacement in verses 21 and 22? Witness of his resurrection. So yeah, by nature of being an apostle, you're a witness to the resurrected Christ. That's what an apostle is. And that doesn't just mean someone who has a testimony like we do today. We're talking about someone like Thomas who felt his hands in his side. We're talking about someone who was with Jesus, one of those 500 that Jesus showed himself to that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. That was one of the qualifications. Okay, what, what else? What else do we see here as a qualification? Verse 21 in particular. All right. Someone who was alive during Jesus' ministry, and you could see here someone who was actually with the disciples during that ministry too. Someone who wasn't uh, in opposition, wasn't like some Pharisee that saw Jesus once, passed him on the street and spit at him. Okay, that doesn't count. It seems like someone who was actually around quite a bit, someone who was a disciple, someone who saw him perform his miracles, all of that. So we're talking about a witness who was around, who saw what Jesus did, including the resurrection, with his own eyes. That's really important to notice. Now, you might think, you might jump ahead and say, well, what about Paul? Your mind might go there because, okay, they replaced Judas with Matthias here. What we know later on, Paul becomes an apostle. And... Paul, if anything, would fit into that category of the Pharisee walking on the street and sees Jesus one time during his ministry, and that might be it. Well, Paul was called in a special sense, wasn't he? Acts chapter 9, the road to Damascus event, a very, very special, unique event. And he was called specifically by Christ to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul recognizes this uniqueness in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, I was like one untimely born. Jesus appeared to all these disciples, into the 500 people at one time, and then like me, just like one untimely born. I'm I'm the baby of the family by a number of years. He came to me last, and he became an apostle. So Paul's, Paul's case is unique. What we see here in verses 21 and 22 of Acts chapter 1 is the rule, not the exception, but the rule. Paul then serves as the exception for that unique role that God had for him. Is there any other passage that you can think of that speaks of apostolic, fun word, qualifications? Any other passage that you can think of besides Acts 1, 21 and 22, where there may be qualifications for what makes an apostle? This is kind of a tough question. Well, you can jot down 2 Corinthians 12.12. I think that's a really important one. 2 Corinthians 12.12, and I'll read it for you. This is Paul here. Writing to this church saying, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Signs, wonders, and miracles were performed by true apostles. And so, uh, maybe not a qualification to become an apostle per se, but one of the things that as you're examining guys who claim they're apostles or whatever, and especially pertinent to the first century, Paul says a true apostle will perform true signs and wonders and miracles. Okay? Those were hand-in-hand hand with the office of apostle. And there may be some other places you could go to to think about some other qualifications, but that's the big one that stands out in my mind. Other thoughts on, or questions on this? Yes, that's right, an uppercase A. And you know what, what does he start his letters with? What does Paul start his letters with? Paul, an apostle. Because you gotta wonder, if you're in the first century as a Christian, or maybe someone who's searching or whatever the case may be, you get this letter and you think, why should I listen to Paul? Well, right from the beginning in his letters, he says, I'm an apostle. I have the authority to write from God, to speak from God, to instruct you in truth. So that's important in Paul's thinking that he's an apostle, he's qualified to do that. And knowing all of that, what does it mean about the office of apostle today? Well, I've already kicked this around. Basically, if you're not performing signs, wonders, miracles, you're not showing the signs of a true apostle, according to what Paul said. If you weren't someone who was alive during Jesus's earthly ministry, a witness to his resurrection, you're not qualified to be an apostle. Those were the qualifications for that early church. And today, those qualifications not only are they not being met, those qualifications can't be met today. Those apostles had a certain function at a certain time. Right? Yes, Taylor. Pretty much, yeah. And usually on, on multiple points, too. It's usually, um, when you see something like that with the church where it's like pretty upfront and obvious, like, okay, if you claim to be an apostle, you're obviously missing what scripture says, that's typically the tip of the iceberg, you start if you start visiting a church like that, you start finding out about all kinds of stuff they're doing that's unbiblical. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions, Joe? Yeah, that second one, yes. That say they perform miracles, and in fact, they'll even—I mean—they'll put on big shows, and it's very, very interesting because we know these aren't true miracles that they're performing. In fact, you could look at some people who have gone in and said, okay, I want to see if they can perform a true miracle on me. And it's just all a show. I mean, we all know this, but they keep filling arenas. They keep filling these massive buildings week in and week out with people who come because they're told if you have enough faith, it'll work. And if you have anything, maybe there's something that's psychosomatic that gets fixed because it's all in your head and you think something gets fixed then you think you had something that worked, so you'll keep coming back for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Um, and even if it's not working, people still have this deep desire to be healed of stuff. So they'll keep going. It, it's just a, really a, a case of the human condition, where we can look at situations like that and say, wow, it's, there's depravity all over the place. But, but what they're doing is really just being, um, what's the word, uh, uh Shan sh- what's the word charlatans that's the word they're being charlatans is what it is and uh and they're good at what they do yeah. no yeah yep you look at those big buildings where they meet and you look at the stuff they wear the stuff they drive it's very lucrative yeah mm-hmm. sow a seed the bigger the seed the bigger the fruit yeah go ahead He does. Sure. And that's also a reality. Yeah. Yeah, so just because we acknowledge that, and this is a great point, Joe, just because we acknowledge that apostles and that office has ceased, that doesn't mean we are saying God's miracle-working power has ceased. That doesn't mean we're saying God no longer heals or anything like that. Um, So, yeah, that's also true where um, God will sometimes use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. We've talked about this before in this class. And even in spite of their off-base thinking, God can do things through people because it's not just all crazy charlatans. We also have people who are respectable brothers and sisters in the Lord who believe that this is going on and they try to heal people. And so there are times when, of course, God heals. And I would say at the same rate as churches like ours where we're not laying hands on people, but God heals and they'll think maybe it's from those Special laying on of hands, but it's really not. Yeah, yeah those are good thoughts. Okay, well, let's uh, keep going here, talk about prophets. So not just apostles, but prophets. that are listed in Ephesians 4 as an office in the church. Prophets existed in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. There are true ones and false ones. The people of God in all dispensations have been charged to discern, here's another blank on your sheet, True ones from false ones. You have to discern a true prophet from a false prophet. Okay? And that can be really difficult because prophets can have, false prophets can have really smooth words, can't they? They can sound really good. They can look really good. They can play on your emotions. They can manipulate you. right? That's how they rose to the level of prominence they have in the first place. Is they're good manipulators. Uh, so we have to be discerning. And I would say, too, it's not just uh, prophets who are in view here, but teachers, okay? True teachers from false teachers, true prophets, false prophets. And let's look at another passage where we can get to the heart of what these prophets were in the New Testament and how it applies to us today by going to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. This is another place in that same book of Ephesians where Paul talks about apostles and prophets. And let's see what his view is here of their function in the church. And this will help us as we talk about discerning between true ones and false ones. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Who can read that for us? Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Evelyn, thank you. That's okay? Okay. So, um, let's hone in on verse 20. That's where we're going to see some important things for our lesson today, verse 20. What you have here in... uh, this verse, and in 4.11 that we looked at earlier, and in 1 Corinthians 12.28, is you see that apostles are listed first. It doesn't say prophets and apostles, it says apostles and prophets. And I do think that's significant in Paul's thinking that it's revealing something. What do you think is implied by, we'll start with maybe not this question specifically, but the order. What do you think is implicated here with apostles being listed before prophets in all three of those passages, and you think of what Paul may have listed the apostles first for. Okay. Okay, so I don't think that's it, but I think I don't think it's a bad answer though either. I don't think it's bad. It's a you're thinking, and that's good. That there was something um, something more substantive, perhaps, of being an apostle rather than an Old Testament prophet. But I think there's something more. I think there's something chronological that Paul had in mind here. Apostles and prophets. Okay. Yeah, but prophets were too. You can make a case for that, right? Uh, God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I set you apart to be a prophet. What'd you say, Joe? Okay. Now let's think about this Apostles are listed first because apostles came first. Before who? Who did they come first before? Did Paul come before Moses? No. So what do you, but I think you're right. So who did the apostles, which prophets did the apostles come before? (laughs) The apostles came before New Testament prophets. Don't you know that there are prophets in the New Testament also, not just in the Old Testament? I think Paul has in view here New Testament prophets. Not Old Testament prophets. When he lists apostles first and he couples them together and he says apostles and prophets, I think he has in view after Christ's death, as Christ has been building his church, he has established apostles and prophets in his church. That's what was going on in Paul's day and age. If you like, look through uh, 1 Corinthians, for example, a lot of talk in chapters 12 to 14 about prophesying. In fact, he gives specific instructions, Paul does, on how prophesying should happen in the congregation. It has to be orderly, because there were prophets in the early church. In, in local churches, there were multiple prophets who had to be given directives on how they could function in an orderly way. There were many prophets in that early church, and I think that's who he has in view. I don't think he has in view Habakkuk and Isaiah when he talks about prophets there. Brandon. Brandon. So you could make the case that John the Baptist was actually the last Old Testament prophet because he never lived uh, to when Christ died, right? So he died uh, before Jesus did, and that he was kind of in the Old Covenant, though Jesus was around, so a little bit of both, but it would actually be more of a case of the last Old Testament prophet. Yep. Yep. All right, and so as we think about this question that's up on the board here, what's the implication of apostles and prophets being foundational to the church? the church in Ephesus, and you could say the church as a whole. I don't think Paul just meant that local church, but the universal church. The case that's being made here, and the implication is that we don't need those offices once the foundation has been laid, right? So if you're building a house, and we'll just do a simple concrete slab house, and the foundation is apostles and prophets, well, you build on that foundation with the other gifts and the other offices that God has given his church. And so we've already seen evangelists. We've seen pastors, teachers. We'll see soon deacons. But we know that there are all kinds of spiritual gifts that exist in the local church, not just in office offices in the church. But we have people with gifts, and we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And and how do we know what that foundation is? Well, we look to the Bible. We have the New Testament, the work of the apostles and prophets that informs us in what we're doing. We build on the Word of God, and they're the ones who gave us the Word of God for this new covenant that we exist in after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so this idea that apostles and prophets continue today, you have to make the case that we have to keep laying a foundation and... I don't think that's what Paul had in view at all. He uses foundation, uh, that illustration, in his letters uh, more than once, and each time it's with the idea of being built upon. You go forth from the foundation, you don't keep relaying that foundation. Is that making sense? Got any thoughts on that? Are you confused at any point here? What? <laughs> Joe, what's in that cup you got there? There are no earthquakes what do you mean? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And it's, and it's been laid. The foundation has been put down. The foundation has been secured. So yeah, could there be an earthquake that could come and crack our foundation? No. Especially when you consider how directly connected the Bible is to that foundation. The word of God is unbroken. That's what Jesus says. And so, it's reliable. We have the best foundation, and he's the chief cornerstone. That's it. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, right. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And there were uh, there were true prophecies that were spoken. You know, they could get really customized to their local context because of God's gifting about what was going to happen in their city, what was going to happen in their church. They could reveal sin, all that kind of stuff. That doesn't exist today. It doesn't exist today. If one of you wanted to speak this morning and said you had a, a prophecy for our congregation, we would say no. No microphone for you. Because there is no need to relay the foundation over and over again. The church has taken off from the foundation. Christ has been building his church off of the foundation. We don't need to lay another foundation. Okay. So when it comes to discerning between true prophets and false prophets... If you take this view that we do here at this church, well, that's pretty simple because anybody who says, I'm a prophet of God, no, you're not. No, you are not. Now, can you be a sound teacher of the word of God? Yes, absolutely. But are you going to be giving us new revelation from God today? No, you will not. Okay? All right. Well, I think we're, uh, I got a couple more summary slides here on apostles and prophets. The Apostle John did not consider it possible for anyone to add to the words of Revelation the last book of the Bible. John's teaching through that is that there is no longer an office in the church with the authority to bring about new revelation from God. And so you'll hear this argument a lot, and maybe you use it yourself, that yeah, no one can bring new revelation from God because you go to the very end of the book and John says, you can't add to these words, it's done. Well, I think John specifically had in view the book of Revelation. I don't think he was talking about the whole completed Bible. That's my personal view of that. But I think the same thing is still being taught through that. He's still saying no one has the authority to add to the book of Revelation. No one has the authority to add words from God here. I think John was probably the last living apostle, and he was recognizing that this is being completed here. It's being wrapped up, and no one has this authority anymore. Okay, That's My particular view on that any other thoughts or questions before we finish up by looking at evangelists today yes yeah yes but but they're in the new testament and you know most people obviously connect to the new testament more than the old testament because jesus is there and so um there's that and you see the uh, prominence that the apostles had, too, where they were able to do a bunch of cool stuff and have that authority, uh, though it was a pretty heavy burden for them to carry what they had to do. But uh, people look at all the cool, flashy stuff, and they think, oh, yeah, I want that. I want people to look up to me and think I'm awesome. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting, too, when you, uh, if you were to survey the people across America who call themselves capital-A apostles and to ask them, how did you get appointed to that office? What kind of answers do you think you'd get? <laughs> I bet those would be pretty frightening answers. Like, God told me in a dream, I'm an apostle. So I woke up, I started church, and I'm an apostle. That's probably 90% of them. Crazy. So, so crazy. Okay. All right, well, let's finish up today by looking at evangelists. Remember Ephesians 4, it says that there are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Well, evangelism is an activity for all Christians in all ages. We are all called to share the good news. But interestingly, in God's program, there are some believers who are particularly proficient in this area, and their ministry in the church is to equip the saints. So you've got a couple of blanks there that some believers are particularly gifted in this area, and their ministry in the church is to equip, or you could say train the saints, to evangelize. Well, There will be some people, like we, uh, remember that interesting character we had in here a few weeks ago, uh, who, Ronnie, who got bounced out of here? Uh, only time that's ever happened. I hope it's the only time it'll ever happen in my life. That was so weird. But um, basically, there are guys like that who say, I'm an evangelist. I think that's even what he told some of our guys, I'm an evangelist. Oh, yes, and he's a healing power evangelist guy. And, yeah, he he secretly records his altercations with police officers and stuff. Yeah, it's – anyway, so he's – but he calls himself an evangelist. And if you were to ask him, well, what local church are you committed to? Of course, there's no answer there because he travels around as an evangelist who's held accountable by zero people. And there are lots of people who do that. They, They say, well, I'm an evangelist, and so church isn't really for me. I'm supposed to be out there on the streets. Well, what's Paul talking about in Ephesians 4 when he says God has given evangelists for the equipping of the saints? Does he he gift evangelists so that they would be away from God's people all the time? No. Now, do they have a special role in being away from God's people and reaching those who need the gospel? Of course, that's what evangelism is. But they also are supposed to be in the body like the rest of us. And their particular gifting is to be used to equip the saints for the same type of service. Not that those people would get trained up to the point of being gifted in the same way, but that they would be trained enough to be able to talk to their neighbor or their family member or whatever the case may be. And so evangelists have a, not just a role in the church, they have a critical role in the church because we need to be trained how to evangelize. John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew say, "...evangelists are uniquely gifted by God at reaching lost sinners with the saving truth of the gospel." Their ministry is one that every church ought to prioritize, both by encouraging evangelism in the local community and by supporting missionary work around the world. Yep, good stuff there. Good summary of that. So let's finish off by uh, kicking around this thought. What do you look for when discerning whether you or someone else have been or has been gifted as an evangelist? What are some indicators? And this gets to one of those really mysterious things in the Christian life that we can get hung up on if we're not careful, is how, how to figure out how we're gifted, Because okay? we know God gives spiritual gifts, and then we know, we know we're supposed to use our gifts. Well, then we can get all freaked out about, well, how do I know what my gift is? How, how do I know? And then, you know what happens? Paralysis by analysis, where it's like, hey, I don't know what it is, so I'm just going to not do anything. That happens a lot. That's not good. You want to, of course, explore and figure out what it is that um, you, know, you are called to do, specifically what you've been gifted to do. But when we think about evangelists in particular, what are you going to be looking for in someone's life here? Throw, throw out some ideas. Okay, good. So we could say carpe diem, right? <laughs> Someone who... You could say is not shy about it. Someone who seems to have an unnatural comfort with having those conversations, and if you've been around some evangelists and you see them at, at work, out there in the wild, it's like, whoa! Do you not care what they think about you? <laughs> and uh, you know, often they're like, no, I don't. I, I I care about their soul. I want to reach them. And so this unnatural comfort with talking about the most serious things. What else do we look for? Yeah, someone who's actually committed to the work, too. Um, Someone could say, yeah, I'm an evangelist, and you ask them, well, um, how many people have you talked to about the gospel this year? Uh, Well, I've been practicing with my dog lately, you know, or something like that. It's like, well, that's, I'm not sure you really have the gift. But someone who has the gift, like Travis, that many of us knew here before he moved to Florida, You you can't stop him. He's committed. If he's at the grocery store, he's going to talk to someone at the grocery store. And he's going to work into his schedule, like, oh, there's a festival that our city has once a month. I'm going to go there and start establishing a rapport with people. Like, just you can't stop him. Someone who's absolutely committed to that ministry um, will reveal itself. Taylor. Okay, so someone who, um, So yeah, this is a really good point. So someone who actually shows grace, <laughs> um, because what message is that person relaying? Well, a biblical evangelist is going to be relaying the message of grace, God's grace in the gospel. So someone who goes around, who is actually not really showing concern for the person's soul, but is more interested in winning debates, perhaps, someone who's more interested in putting people down and making himself look good over and against others... You may be an evangelist, but you're not an evangelist for the gospel. You're an evangelist for yourself. And so, um, someone who's actually going to show grace and build bridges and and show the kindness of God, because that person knows it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, it says in the book of Romans. So that person's going to have that kind of attitude. Good. Hey, good. How about an accurate gospel message? Someone who shows proficiency... And maybe not handling the Bible cover to cover because some people are gifted after, you know, being a Christian for a year. Some people realize, well, God's called me to go reach people. And that's certainly the case. So you don't have to be like an expert in all things Bible. But when it comes to the gospel, you understand it, right? And you can make it uh, understandable by God's grace to the person you're talking to, to where the message is able to be heard and believed. And it's not complicated, mumbo jumbo but it's based on the word of God and it connects with the hearer. Think of one or two more things. Okay, yeah. So um, someone who is uh, also in biblical fellowship, you could say, right? Someone who's in biblical fellowship is very, very important. Um, As we were just talking about, someone who says, well, God's called me to be an evangelist but he hasn't called me to be accountable to anybody. Now, they would never be that forthright, but yeah, that should raise some eyebrows, right? Now, we've listed five things here, and these are five very good things. You guys did a great job. Now, there's something that's not listed here that I am a little surprised that no one said, and I'm sure some of you have thought of it, and so I want someone who's thought of it but hasn't said it to tell me why you didn't say it. No one said success. No one said fruit, converts, number of converts. No one said that it's a sign that you're called to be an evangelist if a lot of people believe your message. Okay, good. Very good. Because at the end of the day, it's not a sales pitch. We're not getting you to buy a 2007 Toyota Corolla or something, right? That's not what it is. We're asking you to be joined in your spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And you can't make anybody do that. No matter how gifted you are, you can't make anybody do that. And that's why we have to be really careful when we look at some people, even those who are good guys, those who have demonstrated these things, and they have a lot of success too. We don't want to say about that person, Well, we know he's an evangelist because look at these crusades he's held and how many people have believed in Jesus or claimed to believe in Jesus through that ministry. There are a lot of false evangelists who have done that too, right? There are a lot of cult leaders out there who have gained a following, who sold a message that people bought. These are really the qualifications that we want to prioritize because these are the things that that show the person's heart, and show that that person is in line with scripture, not just that person is able to get people to sign their name on a card or mark the yes box or whatever the case may be. They okay, have to be really careful about that. Any final thoughts or questions on evangelism or evangelists? Dean? Yeah. And that could be an interesting case study if most of you know Way of the Master, Ray Comfort. He goes out and shares the gospel a lot. Ask yourself... Would Ray Comfort still be an evangelist if he didn't even have one convert? And the answer is yes, he would. Yes, yeah, my mind went right to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. How much success did Jeremiah have? <laughs> None that he saw, right? He was the weeping prophet. Was he still a prophet? Yeah. Okay. Same kind of idea. Yes, Chelsea. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think we could broaden this from evangelism to all spiritual gifts, too. Because uh, the Bible talks about having the gift of mercy or the gift of giving or just all kinds of stuff. And yeah, I think it's a progressive thing. I don't think anybody wakes up one day and says, I'm an evangelist. I'm going to go take on the world. Now, maybe there are some cases where that happens. But with all spiritual gifts, it's something that you experience by starting to do it. God's not going to give you a great confidence and assurance in your heart that you're called to anything if you're not participating. And that's just bottom line for anything that you're called to do, okay? And so you get started, and you'll have failures, and you'll have successes. Like when I started preaching, I was still in Bible college, and my very first sermon, I thought, went well. Then I went to Bible college and started going to a church and got opportunities there, and like sermons two, three, and four— after each one, I said, I'm done. Never doing that again. That was the worst in the world. I hated it. And for those of you who have attempted to evangelize, maybe you've had experiences like that. It's like, well, that went really poorly, and I'm done. But I think this is a sign of the gifting. God's spirit works in you in a way that just brings you right back. i got to try it again. i got to do that again. And that's what happened with me with preaching. So I think it's a progressive thing, for sure. Dean. Yes. Mhm. Yes, yeah, and, and what happens when you pray about it too is you start having your eyes a little more open. Because if you're not praying about it, you're probably not thinking about it. If you're not thinking about it, you're not seeing the wide open doors of opportunity that God puts in front of you. But when you have that as a matter of prayer, God uses that in your life for sure. Okay. All right, well, very good. Well, next week we will get into talking about elders and deacons and uh, how that works with authority in the church and all that business. Um, but that's it for today. Okay, so let's pray, and then we'll move on to the next thing. God, again, we thank you so much for this time we've had together, for your grace that you've shown in our lives, and we ask that you would bless us today with great encouragement through our singing, praying, our fellowship together, that you would be honored in all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.